What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another BTR podcast. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, our first ever returning guest, our favorite Vancouverite who lives in Toronto. So you kind of could stick it to the Maple Leaf fans over there for, I guess, the one outside of the one game. But he is the co-host of the Northern Football Podcast with Ben Steiner and Alexander Gonjeruzic. Uh, He is the writer and analyst for Sportsnet and One Soccer. He's also on the Canadian coaching men's soccer team coaching staff as a performance analyst in the past when John Herdman was the head coach. Um, we're joined by Peter Galindo once again. Hey, Peter, how's it going? Good, guys. Honored to be the first returning guest. And yes, I definitely do love sticking it to Maple Leafs fans. I think that's my favorite <laughs> pastime. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, welcome back. We officially... Uh, We'd love to have you always, so we'll get right into it. Um, you wanna- yeah, first off, um, U-17 World Cup for Canada. All three games have been concluded, and unfortunately, they did not make history by winning a game or, or drawing drawing a game. Um, so just I just want to get your overall thoughts on the tournament, like how the games went for you and uh, what happened. Yeah, it's such a, I think, a nuanced conversation because immediately whenever things don't go Canada's way at a youth tournament, the first thing people bring up is, oh, it's a talent problem. There are too many MLS Academy players. And look, to a degree, they're they're kind of right. And I'll maybe explain why in a bit, but there were some anomalies out there, right? Like I thought that Jeevan Badwal, who of course you guys have family ties to, I, I thought he was excellent for most of the tournament. Um, you know, Gael de Montigny had his moments. Um, Alessandro Biello in the half an hour he played against Spain, I thought looked pretty composed. He was solid enough defensively. Lazar Stefanovic, um, you know, he, the fact that he actually got professional opportunities once or twice with TFC during the season with the first team, that is, it showed because he was quite composed and, and very poised out there. And then the professionals like TJ Tahid and Kevon Tavernier were also, you could tell, <laughs> exposed to a professional environment as well. So there were players in there, even in an academy setting in MLS, who still stood out. Now, some players did better than others. Um, That's going to happen when you have a tournament where you concede 10 goals and only score once. Um, But really the two big issues that I think this all comes back to is a lack of camps. You could tell that all three of the opponents Canada played against had a clear tactical identity. They followed their tactical platforms. They knew exactly where players were going to be. And maybe to bring this back to the Canucks, you always hear Rick talk at talking about playing with predictability and predictability is exactly what a lot of these teams had. And that's a good thing because they're going to immediately know, Hey, if I'm collecting the ball in the half space, so-and-so is going to be here on the overlap. I can just play them in immediately. And it's incisive. You don't really see that with any of our youth teams. Um, And therein lies part of the problem. Now, the other problem as well is that sometimes the players just don't look entirely composed, and that could be because they're not prepared enough tactically. I think that's part of it for sure. Um, But I do think that the, the reason for, another reason for having more camps is to properly ID more players. And maybe not entirely rely on just the three MLS academies. And the fact that you're seeing some CPL teams coming out with their own youth teams as well is going to help with that because whoever the three MLS teams don't pick up, they're probably going to filter into the CPL teams, maybe with the league one teams across the country. Um, and that could help, but look, Canada is such a vast country. You're not going to be able to get everybody, but that could help. 
because the more camps you have, the more opportunities there are to identify players who could possibly figure into the teams. And then the more time you have together to train, to play games, perfect your tactical platforms. Then you go into these tournaments, not getting completely blown away by Spain or, you know, failing to convert your chances against Uzbekistan or just getting the doors blown off of you against Mali. And some people will say, well, what about Mali? Because the infrastructure probably isn't there compared to what it is in Canada. It's one of the most impoverished nations on the planet. To that, I'd say a lot of these African nations do have a lot of superiority talent wise. The problem lies between what happens when they finish under 17 level and then try to transition into the pros. They usually don't get exposure or opportunities to build on their potential. Um, Whereas a lot of Canadian players might, especially with the CPL coming in. So that's what I'd say to that whole thing. It's that if anything, it's exposed a wider issue that the CSA kind of finds themselves in a binds in because they need to spend the money in order for all of their programs to reach their potential, but they don't have the spending power to do so. So to bring it out kind of all back into that one topic, that's really what the problem was when you look at this under 17 world cup. Yeah. Um, obviously like sticking with the, the game, the three games alone first, right? Like obviously the two main parties that are at, uh, I guess at Indonesia playing or is the coaching staff getting the team ready and then the players, Right. And then for me, the players, I agree with you 100% that, like, I'm not saying it's like, obviously, when you're some of the players obviously have professional experience, have professional contracts, probably like TJ Tahid, and who impressed me. But, but obviously, some players need to, like, are, are probably trying to get a contract, try to get scouted because it is a World Cup at the end of the day. So, you know, I'm not saying it's all on the players because maybe some players should have, you know, shown more energy, whether it be press or whatever the case may be. That, that side of things, I bl- I'll blame the players. But the coaching side obviously ties down to the camps. But like, how how do you uh, assess the Canadian coach? I forget it, Olivieri, isn't it? Yeah, Andrew Olivieri. Andrew Olivieri. Yeah. yeah. How do you assess him? Because are you were you happy with the subs he made? Because I thought TJ coming out was kind of surprising to me. Yes. Uh, formation, for example, um, you know, all over the place. Because you could clearly tell that Molly attacking wise were insane. Like they knew where everybody was. They the one, two touches, the give and goes, the tic-tac-toes were all there. Defensively, you saw breakdowns, but then Canada could not convert. So where do you lie between the two sides of the the players and the coaches in this case? The Tahit substitution was puzzling. I want to assume he was hurt. Maybe that's why he came out managing the minutes. I don't know. Um, It's always difficult to say when you're not there, but it was really, really weird to see him come out when he was really the one player, especially against Uzbekistan who was actually causing a lot of problems with regularity. Um, so that that was something that was puzzling to me. And look, when you look just at the results, Oliveri has not gotten the job done at any level, really. Um, and when you look solely at that, he probably shouldn't be the coach anymore, right? Because if you have, and especially when you look at the talent that he had at his disposal over the last few cycles, whether it's under 20 level, of course, Moro Biello took over the last one because that also counted as Olympic qualifying. But before that, it was Oliveri leading the under 20s, as well as the under 17 level. You should be doing a bit more than that. The last World Cup was all right in 2019. They had a decent talent pool. They got a couple of pretty well-fought draws. They played Brazil decently well, which does say something. Um And even in that friendly against Argentina, by all accounts, based on the people I spoke to, like the Canadian team did look decent. 
I don't know if it's a mental thing. And once you step into that tournament setting and you're dealing with the elements of the heat and and all that, it, it, it just kind of frazzles you, but that is on the coaching staff to get the players prepared. So just because of that, I would say that Oliveri is going to be in trouble here. Now, I don't know if he ends up losing his job. I don't, I have no idea what happens with that. Um, Cause obviously he has to build relationships with players and that does go a long way towards getting a squad sorted. But another subject as well that I feel did contribute to this under 17 cycle. And it reminds me of a couple of stories that I've heard and even personal experiences that I've seen the Canadian player tactically. And when it comes to the quality of coaching that they receive, whether it's men's players, women's players, what have you, they're not at the same level as other countries. Like I'll throw out Ireland as an example, because I spent some time in a couple of training sessions with um, a league of Ireland Academy club at under 17 level. And you can see that the players are much more tactically nuanced. They get better coaching in that setting. And listen, the facilities they play in are not as good as some of these MLS academies. Um, I think the quality of coaching is superior in some cases across MLS, even at the first team level, players don't often get that level of tactical coaching and it shows. And before people jump in and say, well, that's Ireland, that's a, that's a footballing nation. It's usually number three or four in terms of football participation. When you look at all the sports in the country, Gaelic football and hurling are usually one and two, and then it's competing with rugby as the third highest participation sport. So for a small country where you're still getting players poached by other sports, they still have the tactical nuance to be able to go out there and execute basic things. And that's something that I think the Canadian player really does struggle with. I'm not saying that's all in all a very, of course, it's really a a, a nationwide issue, um, which is kind of why you still say, well, is the talent really there? kind of a chicken or egg situation for me but when it comes to Oliveri specifically the results speak for themselves and look if, if he isn't under pressure I, I would be kind of surprised you know for me that's not an excuse as well because if you look at the USA they have the NFL they have base like football baseball yeah. basketball even hockey's on the rise there now with mm-hmm. with all the NHL American players there so like if you're looking at it that way it's just like oh Canada's only hockey based or basketball based I, I think that's kind of like BS in a way too because uh, like you mentioned with Ireland, it's like they have other sports they're worried about. Exactly. And look, in, in Canada, soccer is still the number one participation sport. Um, yeah. So to say that it's it's solely because of, oh, other sports are pulling away from it, it, it it's entirely incorrect. Yeah. Uh, in your opinion, I guess, what's the ideal formation for, I guess, because um, I know Joven mentioned to you last time, uh, Joven mentioned to you last time we um, we spoke about how each level of whether U15, 17, 20, seniors, uh, academy, whatever, have like a similar formation, similar tactics. What do you think is the ideal for Canada overall um, when you look through it? Yeah, I, I do feel like, and this is difficult because there isn't a permanent coach in charge, but having the same tactical framework from the senior team all the way on down is the way to go. Um, A lot of clubs do it this way so that when players move up in age groups or they go into the first team environment, they at least have a basic idea of what they're expected to do. So that is clearly the way it should go. Um, There were some similarities from what you saw during the Herman era in terms of 4-4-2 off the ball. You were playing with a center back, back three in possession, trying to get behind the wide forwards, behind the fullbacks, all that stuff. 
but it, it just didn't seem like there was much customization around that. It was almost very similar. It's like, all right, we're going to go route one, try to get it as forward as quickly as possible and just sort of rely on our creative freedom here to, to get something done, which isn't an awful strategy, but at the same time, when you're dealing with these young players who, yeah, some of them are familiar with each other having come from the same academy, but as a collective, they're not going to be in sync with each other. So solely relying on that probably isn't the way to go, really. Yeah, plus they play like different formations and tactics with like, for example, Whitecaps have their own. Maybe the TFC mm-hmm. Academy has their own. Some of these guys are from Europe academies or MLS and American MLS academies, right? So it's like you need the camps to build like the thing because uh, like you said, when we watch the other teams play, it's just you could tell the night and the difference between the chemistry and where players should be and stuff like that. Oh, exactly. Like the amount of times I would see Spanish players, and I know this is an extreme example because Spain's an elite footballing nation, yeah. but just the recognition to know, okay, Alessandro Biello is going to step forward here. He's not going to track me. So I'm just going to run into this half space here in behind the fullback who probably won't be able to catch me because I have a running start. They kind of delay their runs a little bit to get on the end of the crosses properly. It's little things like that that really make the difference. And it wasn't just them doing it. Uzbekistan was doing it. Mali was doing it. Um, and the fact that Canada can't really seem to do that in attack, especially defensively, there were times when they were kind of okay in that regard, but it was the attacking improvisation and, and just the overall attacking sequences that lacked. Um, just finishing off the World Cup here. First of all, I just want to ask, did you think Biello deserved a red card? No, no, not at all. I, I, I okay, thought yeah. that was completely... Like, I was stunned when they even went to VAR to check it. Like, I, I don't know how that sort of a challenge can warrant getting you a red card. And not only was that detrimental because Canada went down to 10 men, you're also losing one of the pillars of the team. Because w- without Biello, you kind of saw it against Uzbekistan the very next game. Tyler Londono, he had an okay game, but there were times when he kind of misread situations and didn't seem to have that chemistry with Jeevan that, clearly Alessandro would have. And they both, in a way, suffered as a result. And then just finishing off here, obviously you did mention some players before, but just any players that just stood out for you that you want to show love to because they performed well? That might have recognition and potential U20 or even senior men's team. Yeah, TJ for sure stood out, and you can see what the pro experience did for him just in terms of the comfort level he had, the confidence he had cutting inside and and really at times dictating games too. Now, not for the entire game, but for, you know, 10, 15 minute spells, whenever Canada had control, I thought he looked really good. Um, you know, I'm not just saying this because I'm on your guys' show, but I thought Jeevan looked excellent against Spain. Yeah. The amount of times he was taking on men and, and somehow maneuvering through two or three players trying to close them down and he'd get through, he'd fire in across or he'd play in um, Kevon Tavernier into the box. Magnificent. Um, and the fact he had to adjust to a new partner in a double pivot, which is not easy to do because not only are you adapting to a teammate that you maybe don't always start with or play with, the double pivot is so, like, it, it's such a finicky thing because you have to be able to time your movements. You have to know, okay, if I push forward here, you're going to track the man here and all these other little details that I feel go unnoticed. So, like, given what he he had to deal with. I thought he did very well. Um, and Lazar Stefanovic as, as well. Like I thought he anchored the back line pretty decently. I understand they conceded 10 goals. Um, thought in possession, he was pretty comfortable. 
Um, those would be the three that I'd look at in terms of players who have high potential in terms of like they could end up having very good careers. Like I wouldn't be surprised if, because obviously Lazar is in the first team picture a little bit at TFC, TJ's getting experience with Vancouver. I wouldn't be surprised if Jeevan ends up going into a preseason squad with the Whitecaps, maybe impresses there, possibly gets an extended look um, a la Ali Ahmed, really, and maybe challenges for a spot, especially with a couple of spots in the midfield opening up next season. So it could be an exciting uh, few months for him. Um, okay, let's move on. I know we touched on the cam- lack of why the lack of chemistry is because of the ca- lack of camps. Obviously, we know the behind the scenes has a, a factor towards that. If you were in charge, I think we asked you this last time, but now after seeing what happened with U17, and we mentioned some solutions on how it should be matched up from the seniors all the way to U15, um, what would be your potential fix to this whole situation? Because at least the one positive from this thing is they at least made the World Cup. The U15s did not qualify. I don't mm-hmm. know about the U20s. I'm not 100% sure with that one. And then obviously uh, the pros, they have their own drama going on as well, yes. but more they're more prepared, I guess you could say. But if you were, I don't know, the head guy, uh, how would you, what would be your ideal solution to getting everybody on the same page and hopefully seeing how what Mali and Uzbekistan and Spain were doing? Or like your first step, basically. Yeah. Fixing. Yeah, I think cooperation is the first one because obviously when they hired the general secretary and then the head coach, I think everybody has to work in conjunction in terms of the hiring of the youth coaches after that. Now, if the budget is there, of course, that's always the the key asterisk here. Um, And then work on, and this is kind of what they did under John at times, like you could see it, um, just working on the same page to ensure that the framework is there from top to bottom. Like, it's so imperative because you see so many of, of the top nations do this. Germany does it. England does it. France, Spain. Um, like, you know, how many times do you go out and watch these teams from senior level all the way down to the under 17s and you see all the same similarities. So that's, that's clearly step number one, because you would solve so many problems by ensuring that there is a tactical philosophy there before you even take charge. So if you don't get those opportunities in camps or in games, at least you kind of know, generally speaking, what you have to work with. Now, obviously, it's probably not going to serve you well come tournament time because you won't have match practice to perfect it, but that's 100% the first step towards getting some sort of consistency at the youth level. After seeing this performance, last thing before we move on to the senior team, well, I guess we'll lead to the senior team here. After seeing performances like this at the World Cup stage, how concerned are you for the senior team? Because the grassroots aren't, as successful as it is right now that's something that i think a lot of people are are starting to look at now and it's interesting now i don't know what the trends are going to look like in the next couple of years and COVID did affect this but over the last five or so years participation has gone down in canada at the youth levels at the grassroots levels and one of the reasons why we have seen such a boom over the last five years or 10 years is because all the players who were born sort of in that late nineties to early two thousands period, it all coincided with the participation boom of the mid two thousands, right? Cause look at how old Fonzie would have been when he started playing or how old Tejon Buchanan, Alistair Johnston, Kamal Miller, they all would have been in like that five, six, seven, eight year old range when that boom began. And now you're seeing the fruits of that labor being bared. 
Also, immigration comes into it because you have so many dual nationals who are now eligible playing overseas in Europe, which is great to see. Um, but if the participation rates don't climb up, um, that could be a real issue come sort of 2030 or in the 2030s, uh, especially because um, when you have more pathways coming with League One Canada, with the CPL, with MLS, etc., the opportunities are there. It's just about having the players to be able to fill the gaps. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the senior team now. Um, you, before we get to the Jamaica uh, Nations League game here, you got to see one game of Marbello. Now it's obviously one game. Your thought, mm-hmm. early thoughts, and um, how about his roster selection in that previous game against Japan, and how it is now? Hard to judge, considering it was the first game for the A squad in four months together. You had to fly to the Far East, deal with a twelve-hour time difference. Uh, jet lag, of course, you don't have much training time either. And you're playing against a very informed side in Japan. They've blown the doors off of every team they've played against over the last six to eight months. So all that considered, they had a decent opening 35, 40 minutes maybe. And then once that first goal went, well, really the second goal, once that went in, then all hell broke loose. And it was individual mistakes, something that I don't think it'll creep into them against Jamaica because a lot of those mistakes I feel were symptoms of just not playing together for a long time, which kind of leads into why I think Morrow went with the veteran heavy squad. You don't have much training time to work with. You're dealing with a group that is in a state of flux right now because there's no permanent head coach. There's a lot of uncertainty within the Federation, which I'm sure factors into this. And you have two games against a quality opponent, probably the fastest rising team in CONCACAF that you have to win in order to get into Copa America, to get into a Nations League semifinal and fight for another trophy come March. So I can understand why he went with the veteran heavy group, especially when you consider that you're not going to have a lot of time to train together. And when you bring in guys who have the chemistry together, have the familiarity tactically, um, you can maybe tweak one or two things on the edges and not have that kind of come into it. I think that's the way to go because you saw what happened at the gold cup with seven uncapped players getting called up for them first time call-ups. And the other three were guys who were only brought in for the first time in March. That was Tom McGill, Victor Loturi and Dom Zator. And it took a couple of games and really a couple of weeks for everybody to get onto the same page, come that Cuba game. And then that USA game, which is kind of when we peaked as a group, but it took countless hours of hard work on the training ground in games get everybody onto the same page. And that's why I understand why Mauro went this way. All right. So you just alluded to it. J- Jamaica games will be a big one. So what are your three keys, I would say, for Canada that they need to hit on in order to win this tie? It's two leg, right, I believe? Yes. Yeah, it's yeah, two legs. So- and it, it's interesting, too, because the Kingston area is going to get pelted by heavy rain over the next sort of 48 hours, I think, at the time of recording. So the pitch is probably not going to be very playable. Wouldn't be shocked if Canada's happy just to see out a nil-nil and kind of come back to BMO Field where they can maybe open it up a little bit more and and, and maybe take it to Jamaica a bit. Um, But when I look at the three keys, having dived into the data and, and the recent trends from this Jamaica squad, there are really three areas that I think are going to be ones to watch here from a Canadian perspective. The first one is the Mikhail Antonio influence because he's often someone who will receive diagonals from the center backs 
pushing the ball. He'll kind of drop into those spaces between the lines of the midfield and the defense. He'll kind of swing it into an overlapping right back or into um, usually Bobby DeCord of a Reed is the right winger. One of those two guys. And then they kind of try to find the back post with their crosses, or they just try to play through you with the technically gifted players that they have. Right. Cause that's a Premier League caliber front four that they have. Um, so that's the one thing I'd look at really just that right side in general, cause that's 10, that tends to be where they focus a lot of their attacks in open play. Secondly, um, attacking set pieces. They've given teams a lot of problems since the start of the Gold Cup off of set pieces. Of course, they scored against the U.S. in their Gold Cup opener. Off a set piece, Damian Lowe is usually quite a threat in those positions. They average about 0.35 expected goals per 90 minutes off of set pieces, which is quite high. So that's something that Canada will have to watch out for, especially when you consider just how well the U.S. did in that Nations League final off of set pieces. So don't be shocked if, say, Stephen Vittoria starts with Derek Cornelius as the left-sided center back. That wouldn't shock me at all just to combat those aerial problems. But then on the flip side, Jamaica does give a lot of space in behind their right back. And a lot of the goals and the big chances they've conceded have come through playing through the space behind their right back. And Damian Lowe is not very good at defending aerials in his own box. As good as he is attacking set pieces, not very good defending in the air in his own box. So that could be an area where Kyle Lahren, for example, could really capitalize on. Um, you can maybe capitalize with late runs into the box because Jamaica's back four tends to kind of drop very deep once the ball gets progressed closer to the byline. So there's going to be space to exploit there when you look at it from a Canadian perspective. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's important to obviously win this because this, to your point earlier, you want to face the toughest competition and what better way than getting into the Copa and playing Argentina, whether it be with or without Messi, still powerhouse, um, Brazil, Uruguay, Colombia, you know, Ecuador is decent and all these guys, right? So um, obviously the pressure's on there as well because now if they don't make it, it's like, are they going to only have one camp like they did against Japan and then get into a World Cup or a Gold Cup? And uh, yeah. Yeah, well, and that's something that John's been screaming from the rooftops for, well, really for the last few months he was in charge, right? It's that we need more matches against World Cup caliber opposition so that we don't have a repeat of what happened in 2022, where we get onto that big stage and we kind of, you know, for a variety of reasons, we just don't maybe reach our potential, right? Whether that's just a lack of killer instinct in both boxes or Croatia adjusts and starts wrestling control from the game slowly. How do we adjust to that mentally and tactically as well? These matches help you prepare for those moments so that when you are presented with it again, come 2026, this group will already know right away, hey, this is what we do in this situation. Or they get one half chance in the opposition's 18-yard box and they put it away, right? And they get that decisive goal. Um, and even if it's not against a Brazil or Argentina, Ecuador is still World Cup tested with world-class players. Same with Colombia. Same with Uruguay. You don't have to play against the big two of Colme Ball to get that practice. Pretty much any team in what is, in my mind anyways, the toughest confederation to qualify out of, that's going to be more than than solid enough match practice for this team. If they can so, get So, I don't know if you're a prediction, man, but your prediction. Will they get it done against Jamaica? I think we do. I'm going to say nil-nil in Kingston, and I am going to say... 
I'm I'm bordering between a two nil or a two one. I don't think we'll keep two clean sheets in a row just with the caliber of player Jamaica has. I'll say two one at home. We'll make it a bit nervy. We'll get it done, but I do think we end up qualifying because more often than not, we do have the quality to get it done in Concacaf. It's just a matter of finally for the first time in a while we're going to be playing against a team not named USA or Mexico who may have the quality to to punish us if we make a mistake or two. Okay. Uh, moving on, uh, Christine St. Clair, uh, obviously about, I think it's been a month now. She has officially called it a career internationally. So I think she has, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if she said one more year, but she has. So those people that do want to watch her, she's still playing for Portland, but internationally Canadian, um, your reaction to the retirement and any memories or stories you may have dealing with her, or maybe you've experienced as a fan in person or meeting her or anything like that. I think just the one thing you can say is that the way that she announced her retirement or the way the retirement came out, it's just so sinky because she never wanted to be the center of attention. Anytime she was presented a question about breaking records or, you know, becoming the greatest player of all time and the greatest international goal scorer of all time, she'd always kind of cringe a little bit and sort of like shyly look away from the person talking to her about this because she just never wanted to be herself. Right. And that's one of the things that people loved so much about her is that she really was a selfless superstar in so many ways. And she helped pave the way too, for a lot of not just young girls out there, but just young players in general to make everybody believe that, Hey, guess what? A Canadian can achieve great things and set world records and become an internationally recognized athlete, uh, you know, in the most played sport on the planet. So like her legacy is is going to be untouched. I, I don't think there's going to be another one like her for a while at the very least, because there's always generational talents that come through every once in a while, but someone like her, who's going to be really the greatest player ever in women's soccer, it, it's going to be difficult to top that. Um, and, and it's something that, you know, m- memories galore. Everybody remembers 2012. Um, everybody remembers her finally getting that elusive gold medal that I think she deserved nine years ago. If they didn't get screwed over in that USA <laughs> game. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, I, I'm glad that she at least got that in the end. Cause uh, she deserved that plus so much more. Um, you're in town for BC place, right? I'm assuming you're going to go to the game. Yeah. yeah uh, I'm also we're gonna be going in, to the game in yeah. Langford as well. Oh yeah, because we're going to. I'm like, hey, me and him are like, what opportunity were we ever going to get to see a goat retire in person? So we're obviously, hopefully, we run into you there. I don't know, but obviously, we have plans to do something in person. But we're going to be at the game as well. So they had the upper bowl, I think, half open and pretty much getting sold out instantly as well. Atmosphere reaction. What? Um, it's going to be insane, right? I think. I think personally, yeah. she starts, and then we'll get off around like the 80th minute because I know currently she gets on in the 80th mm-hmm. or 70th minute. But I think it'll be flipped just because it's her last game. No, she has to start. Yeah, <laughs> potentially. Yeah, potentially. Like, I, I think in some way she's going to get that moment to say goodbye to the fans. All the attention is going to be on her. She's probably going to hate every single second of it. Yeah. But, you know, she's just going to have to embrace it because she's retiring. Like, the goat is retiring. This is what you do. Um, and I almost feel like, too, it's, it's almost like a – this is a very fitting way to retire because you're not just going out against some minnow out there in a game you're expected to win. Like this is against an elite team, one that blew the doors off of you at the world cup. So this is going to serve as really quality match practice for the team, but then also you're going to be paying your respects to the greatest of all time at the same time. And 
look, in this system, she does still have a fit. So it's not like she's going to be out there and just kind of just be part of the furniture. She actually will, you imagine, contribute in some ways too. So this is kind of the best of both worlds. Um, okay, so before we move on to the European and other reactions, we have a little fun exercise. I know Joven brought one last time when he did the whole co-ed World Cup or co-ed team. This one, we're going to just determine where Christine St. Clair ranks all-time athlete-wise. So obviously, quickly with soccer, you just mentioned men and women's side. I don't think anyone touches her. With all due respect to Atiba Hutchinson, um, mm-hmm. Christine St. Clair's obviously stats and like what she's done for the game has been blown uh, through the roof, right? Um, from currently in the women's side, I don't think anyone's close. I know Jesse Fleming is the one you could say eye-watching, like watching-wise, you could say. But on the men's side, Alfonso Davies' talent, but we will see what happens. Do you agree with that, that right now, no one's touching her for a while at, at the soccer level for men and women? thousand percent. Like, Fonzie could be someone who could reach that, but he'd have a long way to go. He's getting there with all the trophies. He's winning at Bayern. And then with those Real Madrid links as well, maybe he moves there and ends up going another level. But for sure, it's Sinky and and really nobody else comes close. Okay. So we, a couple of episodes, when she announced her retirement, we, me and him, uh, Joven, we decided, we were looking at to see where she ranks all time. We'll go hockey last because that's, I know where, that's where most of the names come from. The Mm. names that we came up with multiple sports, golf was Brooke Henderson. I think on the female side, she's probably top five, but Sinclair probably tops right. her. Um, mm-hmm. Tennis is pretty young right now with Bianca Andreescu, Leila Annie Fernandez, Denis Shapovalov, and Felix Auger-Alassim. Yeah. Uh, swimmers, we have Penny Oleksiak and the rest of the crew there right now that's killing it in the Olympics. Decathlon, Damian Warner, who I believe is very underrated. Yes. Uh, UFC, George St. Pierre, a Canadian legend that way. Yeah. Uh, from the runners, we have Andre de Grasse currently, but with Donovan Bailey from back the, in the 96 and that relay team as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, baseball is Larry Walker. I know there's not much there. Football, there's yeah. literally no one, <laughs> I yeah. think. Um, basketball, you have Steve Nash as an argument, but then I feel like because the Raptors more propelled it in Canada, because we're judging mm-hmm. this based off of legacy as well, not just stats. Um, like to the point of Alfonso Davies, we have Shea Gilgis Alexander and Kia Nurse, I guess, from the women's side of things. Um, soccer, we already mentioned, and hockey is where we have it. Gretzky one, possibly Crosby two, and then she's in a debate with Haley Wickenheiser and Marie Philip Poulin, which makes her like an arguable three or two in that range. Where would you rank her all time based on some of these names I just said? Yeah, like that's and it's it's so difficult because it depends on what your criteria would be. Right, because obviously soccer as a global game, much bigger than hockey. But when you're yeah. looking at the impact they've had in Canada, yeah, um, you, you would still, yeah, third is probably fair, to be honest, because Crosby and Gretzky are the two that you automatically think of in terms of who did Canadians idolize growing up, and it would usually be, especially now that Crosby's getting older, it's one of those two. Right. And now Christine Sinclair, I think after that, especially once she retires and you're going to start to see even more players coming through, she might start to challenge, but third is, is probably it. Cause Donovan Bailey. Yeah. Like that's a good shout. Um, George St. Pierre is a really good shout because any Canadian MMA fighter who comes through, it's like, Oh, who's your honor growing up? Oh, it's GSP. Yeah. 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 Um, But it would probably third. I think you guys are spot on. Yeah. Cause we based it on, I think legacy plus stats, so, like, obviously, we know McDavid. Who knows where he'll end up finishing up, but that's not right now. And then, yeah, because, like, to show love to Marie-Philippe Poulin, who's killing it in the women's hockey game, 
as well as Haley Wickenheiser. We're like, okay, we might as well put all three of them together. Yeah. And I know for a fact people are gonna say Crosby and Yvette or uh, uh, Gretzky. Gretzky. Yeah. 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 Oh uh, yeah, no, we agree Real with you there. Then. Good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I'd say um, you guys are pretty close. Sure. Perfect. Um. All right, we're gonna move on to the European side of things. But before we go into that, we've seen you tweet something after a Whitecaps game. The last Whitecaps game <laughs> about officiating. So, yes. and it's not just the MLS that's brutal. Um, obviously we're Manchester United fans, so we watch the EPL a lot. And there's a lot of. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to Man United in a second, but we've seen the Liverpool VAR drama. So your overall um reaction to the officiating across all leagues right now, how very inconsistent and brutal it is in our opinion at the moment. And they have a tough job. We know that, but yeah. we have to criticize when we need to. I just think that a lot of, of teams or not a lot of teams, sorry, a lot of referees now they're so reliant on VAR to kind of bail them out that I feel like referees are too afraid to make a definitive decision at times. At least that's what it looks like in Europe. Um, Cause the amount of times I've seen a certain incident in real time happen. And I'm like, Oh, that's a, that's for sure a booking or that's for sure a foul or that's not a foul. And it ends up going the other way. I'm thinking to myself, well, what could you have possibly seen there? And I know a lot of current and former referees also bring this up as a possible conflict because they all say, well, in the back of their minds, are they thinking that VAR might show me up here or that I might look like I'm an idiot? Um, Because at least pre-VAR, whenever a referee would make a decision, it was a case of, well, that decision clearly wasn't right when we look at it in hindsight, but it was his choice. He had no resources. We just kind of got to go with it. It almost seems like it's gotten worse in that regard since VAR has come in because they just keep changing the criteria, the constant rule changes year on year, especially with handballs and what constitutes a, you know, double penalty in terms of a red card plus a penalty and and just all these things that just make it so confusing. Because initially it was brought in to just be clear and obvious errors. We saw at the 2018 World Cup how effective that was, and it's just gotten progressively worse since then. Um, not, before we get to the Liverpool reaction that you may have, but how much is it the freeze frame and the slowdown that makes it just 20 times worse? Yeah. For yeah. example, Marcus Rashford, it wasn't like he definitively stomped the, stamped the guy and I think, no. was it the, yeah. it was the Copenhagen. Copenhagen game, the Champions League game. Correct. And then yeah. Liverpool did the same thing in the Europa League. And, and Biello as well, right? Like, yeah. And when yeah. you look at the play, to me, Biello slipped and it hit the guy's leg. But when you look at the freeze frame, it's going to show Biello's stamp, like literally stud, studs up on the ankle, right? Yeah. So yeah. You, is that the main it's, factor that's causing outrage? I would say so. Yeah, because it, it goes with any sport too. You slow down anything and you play it in slow motion, like how much worse does it look when you slow it down as opposed to real time? And that's something that I think, that's like one small tweak that I think every VAR crew could use. It's just watch the incident again in real time. Sure, if you want to look at it in slow motion, just to see kind of what happened during that moment that you maybe didn't catch, but watch it in real time and then judge it based on that. I feel like it just becomes a bit too letter of the law and too much by the book. And I know that's weird considering these are laws of the game, but you also have to have a feel for certain things. You have to use context at times, especially in a sport that is just so fast all the time. And it's the same thing with hockey. It's the same thing with any sport that has such a fast pace to it, whether it's basketball, hockey, football, what, what have you. Your reaction to the Liverpool VAR audio. You know what? The, it's one of those like you're speechless like yeah. you're not surprised but you're still like it 
you know that meme where you're like you know our expectations were low but holy you know yeah, what? Yeah. like it, it's exactly like that um and it, it just makes you realize like wholesale changes need to be made for this you know if you wanted to bring in var to clean up the clear and obvious just go back to that bring it in for those situations if you want to look at it for marginal offsides and you want to look at it for like, oh, maybe there was like a foul in the buildup 40 seconds before this goal actually happened that actually wasn't at all consequential to what ended up happening, then in my opinion, the the game is gone. Yeah, because like, you know, you know how, because you watch hockey, you're a Canucks fan. When I, like it happened recently, when JT Miller, I think, scored in that, I forgot which game it was, they, they said it was no goal because they thought it hit the post and then the horn sounds. In this case, the audio was like, oh, it's too late. The game started. You could just be like, okay, no, stop. That should be a goal because that was not offside. Like, how hard is it to say, oh, just come, like, correct the error, essentially. Like, that was the whole point of it. That's it. And, and part of it, too, and the NHL has a massive problem with this especially, but so, so does the the PGMOL, like the Premier League Refereeing Association and all that. They don't hold the referees entirely accountable. Like, look, obviously you don't want to see them get abused and have death threats sent their way and in some cases actually get hurt. But you also need to hold people accountable. Like, if we don't do our jobs well, well, guess what? We're going to be held accountable. We're going to be reprimanded in some way because of that. And in some cases, you do see referees get relegated to the lower leagues of England and whatnot, and maybe they're banned from refereeing Premier League matches for a couple of weeks, but then they're right back into it doing the same thing over again. So... I think in order for it to work, there has to be some give and take here in terms of, yes, referees do have a difficult job. We do have to help them. We've suggested some possibilities as to how we could do that, but also hold them accountable when they actually do make mistakes so that if a situation like this happens again, then maybe they might think twice and go, okay, well, this happened last time. With the context I now have, I can make a more informed decision. Yeah, last thing with that, to your point, Anthony Taylor, right? Yeah. He got demoted to, I think, championship, championship yeah. had a right. brutal call and then mm-hmm. got promoted to the Chelsea Tottenham game or whatever was it? Uh, whoever they played last yeah, weekend. They last, yeah. yeah, he got promoted to do that game. Not even like a lower, like, I don't know, Wolves versus yeah. uh, whoever's up, like Burnley like, or yeah, something, something, right? Like it was like... When all the eyes are on you. Yeah. <laughs> so, Wild to me, yeah. <laughs> like, you did the right thing, you relegated him, there's a brutal call, but you promote him. It, it made no sense. <laughs> Yeah, and and again, that's part of the problem we have, right? Yeah. Um, okay, uh, enough bashing referees here, I guess. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> let's let's um, close it out with some quick-fire European reactions. You mentioned it earlier when we were talking about the GOAT talk. Alfonso Davies, Madrid rumors. How much do you buy it, and do you think he'll end up being a Real Madrid player come next season? I'm slowly starting to buy it more because when you look at the turmoil within Bayern Munich, apparently there's a little bit of infighting. There's a bit of uncertainty in terms of like who's really in charge, who's making the decisions. Um, and also just the fact that maybe Fonzie thinks, you know what, a change of scenery could help me here. And Real Madrid is Real Madrid. Like Bayern's obviously a massive club. We know this, but Real Madrid is, is that one club that I think every kid idolizes playing for one day. Um, like even David Beckham, who was a childhood Manchester United fan. We saw it in the documentary. He was like, look, I didn't want to leave United, but it's Real Madrid. And I think yeah. Fonzie might be in a similar situation with this, which, look, if he goes there, that'd be amazing. I mean, him and Vinicius on that same flank, whoo, yeah. uh, like it, it would be it would be something. That's for sure. Hey, 
And if they convince Jamal Musiala to join them with <laughs> Jude in the oh, middle, God, like, yeah. oh my, that's over. Like it's genuine. Hold the Champions League if that happens, honestly. Yeah. Just don't even allow him to qualify. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, Man United fans here. So, for obviously, before when we uh, talked, they're like, uh, you know, you have some time. Don't need to overreact. But now we got a little bit more games under uh, the ha- uh, under, games our belt. Uh, under our belt now. So, what do you think the United- Manchester United situation is right now? And do you believe that Ten Hag should be fired or not? You know, I, I do. In, in in complete danger here of sounding like Gary Neville. It does go back to the top, right? And oh, you're seeing these reports come out, right? In terms of how this takeover business kind of affected things at the club and the players aren't all there mentally, right? It's not too dissimilar to what the Canadian players might be dealing with, with no general secretary, no permanent head coach, obviously a slightly different situation, but still there's no certainty at the top. So it kind of makes you wonder, well, what's really going to happen? And I'm sure that does affect performance. But at the same time, when you look at the underlying numbers, they are underachieving slightly when it comes to their attack, but then they're also overachieving when it comes to their defense, which I find fascinating because all the talk earlier was about how Andre Onano was maybe not up to the standard and all this. He's starting to come back into form and playing like the Andre Onana we saw at Inter and, and at Ajax as well. Yeah. Um, but the attack just isn't firing. And look, whether it's whether it's to do with, with injuries, whether it's to do with the players just not maybe being all there mentally, I don't know if firing another coach is really the solution here because it's happened so many times. We, we've seen, and, and it's weird because they always have solid first seasons, sometimes decent second seasons. And then if they stick around a third season, that's when it falls off. And we're now starting to see Ten Hag comes in, has a slow start, solid first season in the end. Second season, you're supposed to progress. And it just hasn't happened. Maybe now with Ineos starting to, you know, take it over and, and they're, maybe this is starting to, to rest a little bit. We'll start to see a bit more consistency, but it is wild to me because you look at the squad and you think, you know, they're not, it's not a half bad 11 for sure. Um, yeah. There are some holes with it. And you have Erasmus Hoyland who has basically 70 professional games under his belt, which is maybe less than ideal, but you also have to give him a chance to play. Like, why are you taking him off early in matches? I don't understand, yeah. especially when he's really your one main threat and he's getting into quality positions. He's your one best chance to score. Why are you taking him off the pitch? Yeah. So Ten Hag is an entirely, you know, not at fault here, but there are other extenuating circumstances as there always seems to be with you. Yeah. You know, game by game, we've said it many times too. It's like, yeah, Ten Hag deserves his criticism, but there are a lot of injuries as well. And uh, he had a great, he's the, one of the quickest managers. To, I think he is the quickest manager to get like 30 wins or something uh, in yeah. Man United history. And then, yes, he's having the one of the worst this year. But at the same time, like you said, the drama. And for what, you're going to ha- fire this guy and bring in, I don't know, Julian Nagelsmann or whoever else might be available. That's his level. Yeah. Like, it's going to be this, it's the same story over and over. There's no, there's no point. That's like, it. Let him. And then, yeah, I agree with the Ten Hag. Sometimes his tactics, like, uh, why is he playing Anthony so much? And why is he not playing this guy? That, yeah, we could criticize him. But I still, at the same time, I still think he's fine. Like, the players, in my opinion, at times don't play for the, you know, the quote-unquote badge and the passion and type of thing. That mm. shows as well. Yeah. Oh, and that's part of it for sure. But, yeah, I mean, some of the selection decisions too. Like, why not give Facundo Pellistri a run out over Anthony yeah. if Anthony isn't getting it done and he has these domestic abuse allegations hanging over 
right? Like just for that alone, give someone else a chance. And police street, the odd time he's been called upon. Like I've liked what he's done. He just hasn't played consistently enough to really show anything. Yeah. It's just, that's what get him. will get him fired. If anything, (laughs) if worse comes to worse, that's what's been called. But uh, moving on, um, the champions league, obviously I know you're still sticking by your man city. I know you're probably still sticking by the man city prediction. It's an easy pick, but the group of death is what I want to talk about. It is Mm -hmm. living up to the name. Because oh, each yeah. game, something different is happening. And the group of uh, death is the the PSG, Newcastle, Dortmund, and AC Milan group right now. Yeah. So reaction um, to that, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been... Look, I, anytime you see that group of death called out, you're always thinking to yourself, oh, okay, like what's really going to happen? But the fact that they're all still in with a shout with a couple of games left is wild to me now i think newcastle's probably going to be someone who you look at and think they're not going to make it just because they're hitting those injuries and they're starting to see what happens when you're dealing with playing these big matches from a tuesday or wednesday into a saturday or a sunday and you maybe don't necessarily have the depth and quality to cope with it whereas even a dortmund has it we all know psg does with their mega billions and uh ac milan they have some pieces, some young pieces who've kind of come in there and really impressed, um, especially Malik Tia and, and, and the like at center back. So it's, it's one group that you look at and like, it, it's appointment viewing, like no matter who plays, you look at it and you're like, okay, I got to watch both games today. Like, even if it's on delay, I just, I have to check yeah, them out. Yeah. Um, and, and if I had to pick a favor to come out of it right now, look, PSG have been slightly unlucky. Um, I feel like they've been the dominant team in all four of their matches. And if I had to pick a team that would win the group, it probably would be them. If I had to pick a, like, if I had to pick who comes second, it, it's hard to say Dortmund is just so porous defensively. I don't know if they're going to get through. I feel like Milan, just because they kind of have that defensive organization and they have the history of being able to grind out one nils under um, Pioli, they're probably my favorite to come second, but who, who knows? Cause yeah, so far, yeah. Who would have thought that it would be seven six five four for all four of those teams? Yeah, and yeah. then Newcastle beat PSG <laughs> exactly. out of all the teams. Yeah. Yeah. Your no reaction to that? Coming. Your reaction to the Sandro Tonelli? Uh, since you mentioned Newcastle, that betting scandals, like we're seeing it, we saw it in the NHL recently. We're mm-hmm. seeing it in the NFL. But yeah, your thoughts on this whole betting thing and how is it like? Is it hypocritical because the betting sponsors are everywhere as well, to a certain extent? Yeah. Like, don't bet on your yeah. sport, but yeah. Of course. Yeah. And I think that that's something that you, that's where you hit the line, right? Like that's where you do cross the line when it comes to gambling. But when you are constantly seeing all these shows, especially when I go to, to Ireland and I'm watching Sky Sports and it's like, oh, this program's presented to you by Skybet. This program's presented to you by Patty Power, William Hill, all these sports books, or even you just watch the, the typical NHL game and it's all these sports books coming up and you're like, well, okay, come on. Like we're, we're suspending players for doing the very activity that makes these sponsors and these sports books money. And it's not affecting their integrity in the game. They're not betting on their own teams in some cases. Um, and they're, they're still kind of towing that line, which to me is, is okay. Especially when sports betting is just so heavily involved in everything now. Like it, to me, that's something that they do have to find the line with. We've seen in the NFL, seen in the NHL. I think it's come into baseball once or twice recently. And now we're seeing it in the Premier League and in other leagues as well, obviously in Italy too. 
Yeah. Two things before we uh, close it out here. What I was just looking through the league standings. I don't know how much you pay attention to outside EPL as well, mm-hmm. but uh, La Liga. The leaders are Girona or Girona. I've, I don't know how to pronounce yeah, it properly. Girona, yeah, yeah. They're, they're ahead of Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Atletico Madrid. And on the other side, on the Bundesliga, it's Bayer Leverkusen, which might not be as big of a surprise as yeah. Girona. But yeah, like those caught eye-opening to me when I was just looking through the standings today before we were prepping uh, for uh, having you on. Yeah, Girona is a, a team that, you know, I've only watched them a couple of times this year. Like they, they have just the most motley crew out there for them, but they're, they're getting the job done. And to be honest, like you, you watch, you watch them play and offensively, they are magnificent. Like they're just firing in the goals. And then you look at their underlying numbers just to see like, Oh, well, is this actually sustainable? And look, I think attacking wise, it's going to slow down a little bit. They're maybe going to come down to earth slightly, but you still look at it. And when you look at their expected goals, like they're still on a pace to, probably finish top four, maybe top five at worst and get that automatic Europa League spot. Like they've been that good this year. Yeah. Um, and then over in Germany, Bayer Leverkusen, they're just so easy on the eye. And it's so typical that Xabi Alonso is the one to turn it around because before he came in, they were a tire fire. He comes yeah. in and establishes his clear style of play. Victor Boniface has just come out of nowhere and has become one of Europe's informed strikers. I don't know how the hell that happened. But he's a quality yeah. player. Um, they've got some, some really good pieces there. A lot of young players as well. Many of whom I think are going to probably pique the interest of some of uh, Europe's elite very soon, especially if they can keep on challenging Bayern at the top. All right. Last thing. All right, last thing. So Ballon d'Or, you predicted Holland. We predicted Messi. And mm-hmm. somehow, uh, Fabrizio Romano reported two days before the actual, <laughs> <laughs> the actual award ceremony that Messi won. So what is your reaction yeah. to, of the Ballon d'Or winner? And uh, were you surprised? No, not surprised. Cause I think I came on the show and I said, look, I'd have no problem if Messi won it. But when you look at the calendar year that Holland had winning a treble, breaking all these goal scoring records. And yeah, he was in a man city team that was otherworldly, but they've also had very solid teams in the past and never produced a goal scorer like that before, right? Sergio Aguero is probably the one who comes the closest. And even then he never hit the heights Holland hit. So that's why I went with him for my Ballon d'Or pick. But when you look at Messi, um, single-handedly dragging Argentina, in some cases, to a World Cup, at, at the very least, kind of being the one to be like, all right, we need a lift. I'll be the one to kind of deliver that signature moment. And even at PSG, he was still one of the top assist providers in Europe. Um, it's not his fault that they just choke every year in the Champions League. It doesn't seem to matter who's on the roster. Um, so I, I don't have a problem with him winning it. I know a lot of people did. It's like, oh, it's just because they want to inflate his stats and he won the World Cup, so they're just handing him a Ballon d'Or. He still had a very good year. And it's all in the eyes of, of the voters, right? It's not too dissimilar to any other individual award that, that you see in any sport. Those are either Ronaldo fanboys or fangirls <laughs> and yeah. not much fans of the game, I guess you could say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they're just, yeah. Um, Okay, very quickly, sorry. Early Ballon d'Or favorite. Is it Jude Bellingham still for you? Because we talked about him last time. Yeah, the ratings going, yeah, because he's he's the reason Real Madrid are really at, like he single-handedly won them a Clásico. He has them fighting for the title in La Liga. Um, they're definitely gonna go through in the Champions League here and probably make another decent run. And he's really gonna announce himself. I can't wait to see what he does at these Euros. Um, because yeah. listen, if if England wins the Euros, first of all, stay off of Twitter. 
if England win the Euros, stay off of social media in general, if England win the Euros. Um, But if they do, you imagine Jude Bellingham's probably going to play just as crucial of a role. So, and if he does, for sure, he's going to be a favorite to win the Ballon. I think Selkie will somehow mess that up. Because, like, that's... I don't hate England because of the England fans as much as some people do. Do I just hate the Southgate excuses and selections of why he's not selecting players and then contradicts himself. That's about it for me, at yeah. least. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right, Peter, we appreciate you once again for hopping on with us, um, give us giving us the insight of the Canada soccer, you know, having some fun conversation on who, who actually the GOAT is in Canada. Uh, before we let you go, though, can you, you, you could once again promote your, uh, your stuff, your podcast, your work to everybody watching. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me back on. I it was a lot of fun as always. Um, and yeah, if you want to check out my work as always subscribe to Northern football, um, wherever you get your podcasts, I do stuff for sports at one soccer, pretty much anybody who will take my work and I will post them on my Twitter account slash X account, whatever you want to call it. Now I've refused to call it that because it sounds so <laughs> weird to me. Don't Twitter, uh, don't Twitter. Always be Twitter. It will always be Twitter. <laughs> Uh, follow me there at Galindo PW. You'll see all those links and all the work that I put out there. For sure. Yeah. Um, uh, it will be all linked down below. And once again, for everybody, Peter, thank you for joining on, uh, joining us, uh, coming back on for us. And uh, for everybody else watching, we'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace. Peace.